0: Let us look to the Lord in prayer. Good and gracious God, we thank you for this beautiful fall day that you have blessed us with. We thank you for this opportunity to gather once again with each other, in person and online, to worship you in spirit and in truth. (coughs) We Thank you for our families, our friends and loved ones, for this, our church home, for food, clothing, and shelter, for our... Jobs and livelihoods and sources of income and meaning and purpose in our lives. Truly, you have been better to us than we've been to ourselves. So, we gather this day, Lord, to give you all thanks, honor, glory, and praise, and to hear from you yet again a word of hope and transformation, healing, and power. We thank you, Lord, as always, for your grace and your mercy and for speaking to us constantly, even when we often ignore you or do not listen. We thank you for everything, Lord. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> My sermon text for today is the second lesson, which is assigned for this Sunday morning. It is from the New Testament letter or book of Hebrews. Uh, it is a uh, assemblage of verses. It's chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then chapter 2, verses 5 through 12. My sermon title for today is the first five words of chapter two and verse nine, which is, but we do see Jesus, but we do see Jesus. This letter to the Hebrews that we have before us this morning is a biblical gem in the firmament of the New Testament writings. Both its author and its recipients are anonymous, having been lost to us down through the ages. Many have speculated that perhaps Paul or Barnabas or Apollos wrote it, but those are all conjectures. One distinguishing trait of the letter is that it offers the longest sustained argument of any book in the Bible, affirming the superiority of Christ over, in order, the prophets, angels, Moses, and and the Levitical priesthood of the ancient Israelites. Toward that end, many a commentator has postulated that this letter is actually a sermon based on Psalm 110, a psalm of royal coronation and perhaps a messianic psalm. Because of its content, the one thing that can be deduced from Hebrews is that it was addressed to a congregation of new Christian believers who were seriously considering abandoning their new Christian faith and returning to their former, in this case Jewish, roots, beliefs, and rituals. This letter begins memorably then, with the reminder that long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by a son. Arguably, it reaches its climax in that great roll call of faith found in chapter 11, Which begins, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And ends, therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Before concluding the entire epistle with the timeless exhortation, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. At its heart then, this letter to the Hebrews is A word of admonition and exhortation, a word of pressing on, a word of keep on keeping on. All of which begs the question why would this particular congregation be wanting to go back to the past? What about their present, or perhaps their future was so daunting, so discouraging, so foreboding that the enticement to go back was so formidable? so palpable? What is it about our human nature that finds the way we were so attractive, so appealing, so beckoning that we require a strong, direct, biblical exhortation simply to keep moving forward? Why did Lot's wife look back while fleeing the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and subsequently turn into a pillar of salt? Why did the ancient Israelites, newly freed from slavery in Egypt, look back wistfully at the land of their oppression as a place where they at least sat by the flesh pots and ate their fill of bread? Why did Orpah kiss Naomi and go back to Moab while Ruth clung to her and went forward to Israel? Why did Jonah flee backwards, as it were, to Tarshish rather than progress forward obediently to Nineveh? Why did Jesus teach no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God? What possesses Peter in his second epistle or letter to sum up this phenomenon among believers with the proverb, the dog turns back to his own vomit and the sow is washed only to wallow again in the mire. What is it? about turning back my friends that is so beguiling so seductive and alluring to all of us as human beings regardless of our station or lot in life that it requires seemingly an inordinate superhuman amount of courage simply to keep moving forward there are many different reasons for romanticizing the past and seeking to return to it for this first century congregation of Hebrews For believers down through the ages, and even for us today, uncertainty, confusion, anger, nostalgia, homesickness, fear, anxiety, imminent death, persecution. But all of these disparate feelings and experiences can be boiled down to and instilled into one inescapable fact. Life is hard. Life is extremely difficult. How many of you have ever woken up one day to the simple painful thought, it wasn't supposed to be like this? I wasn't supposed to be lonely. I was supposed to have a loving companion. I wasn't supposed to be divorced. I was supposed to have a happy, healthy, long-lasting marriage. I wasn't supposed to be scraping by financially, living check to check, hand to mouth. I was supposed to be financially secure. I wasn't supposed to be laid off and downsized. I was supposed to have a stable career. I wasn't supposed to have a job that I hated. I was supposed to follow my dreams. I wasn't supposed to battle terrible, draining disease either in myself or a loved one. We were supposed to be reasonably healthy. I wasn't supposed to spend my evenings drinking beer and Watching reality TV. I was supposed to go to the opera, the symphony, the ballet, art museums. I wasn't supposed to be insignificant. I was supposed to matter. When life is not proceeding as planned, my friends. When facing the bleak landscape of your current reality and future prospects, the pasts of Sodom and Egypt and Moab and Tarsus start to all look pretty good. Hebrews opens up masterfully, majestically, reminding us exactly who Jesus Christ was and is. He is the heir of all things, Scripture says. He created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. He sustains all things by His powerful Word. He has already made purification for our sins, and He currently sits at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Such a lofty description of Christ is really only found and rivaled in two other places in the New Testament. Number one, the opening of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him and without Him not one thing came into being. What has come into being with Him was life. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And number two, the middle of the first chapter of Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things. And in him all things hold together. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God reconciled all things to himself by making peace through the blood of the cross. Lofty language. Inspiring reminders indeed. But now, to the uncomfortable paradox of suffering in this world. It is obvious to us that we suffer. And we seek meaning and purpose to our suffering until the day that we are relieved of it. But we are just as perplexed about the suffering of God's Son, Jesus Christ, who was just described in such powerful and ultimate fashion. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 today. Say that Jesus is now crowned with glory and honor because, because of the suffering of death. And furthermore, it goes on to say that he was made perfect through sufferings. Made perfect through sufferings. We don't know why that was the necessary plan and trajectory for Jesus' life. Much less why it seems to be the case for us also much of the time scripture is replete with references intimate linking intimately linking our sufferings to our being made perfect and complete and we understand almost none of them romans 5 13 says we rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces endurance endurance produces character character produces hope And hope does not disappoint us because God's Spirit has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. James 1 verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my friends, when you meet various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness leads to you being made complete and perfect, lacking in nothing. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 has God say to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. Because my power is made perfect in weakness, which leads Paul to conclude, Then I will be content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For reasons unknown to us, left beyond the comprehension of all, save the Holy Spirit, we live in the tension. Between our noble origins and destiny as described in verses 6 and 7 herein, which are a direct quote of Psalm 8, actually, and life in this world as we know it. Verse 8 directly encapsulates our dilemma, our quandary. Now, in subjecting all things under our feet as mortals, as human beings, God left nothing outside our control. But. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to us. Let me repeat that. In subjecting all things under our feet, God left nothing outside our control. Nothing outside our control. But as it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to us. This is what scholars and theologians refer to as the distinction between the already and the not yet. A situation exists, but we do not yet see it fully. It's there, but we have yet to grasp it. All things have been subjected to us. Nothing is outside our control, but we do not yet see or perceive that reality. That's why Scripture says in another place, we walk by faith and not by sight looking not to the things that are seen, but rather we look to things that are unseen. So what do we do with this unsettling situation? Where to look in this baffling and painful interim reality between our glorious origin and destiny and this troubling interim period of life. We do not yet see everything in subjection to us as mortals. Or as human beings. But, verse 9 indicates, but we do see Jesus. Verse 9, but we do see Jesus. I was guest preaching once at a church when something peculiar occurred which did not escape my notice and which I have never forgotten. As the guest preacher, I was seated up on an elevated pulpit area with an unhindered view straight down the center aisle. There came a designated time in the worship service for what's known as liturgical dance. And so the music began. The dancers came out to the front of the congregation and began dancing across the front. The music was beautiful and melodious. The dancers were graceful and polished. The congregation was clearly pleased and moved. It was a magnificent expression in movement of the grace, mercy, and love of God. And then the CD skipped. And it skipped again. And it skipped again. The CD began skipping all over the place and getting stuck and repeating the same chords over and over and over again. The dancers panicked, not knowing what to do. They tried to hold their moves or skip forward with them as dictated by the CD. Each began doing their own thing apart from the others, and the routine quickly unraveled. Through no fault of their own, they began to look silly and ridiculous. You could see the embarrassments on their faces, and you could see the congregation embarrassed for them, shifting in their pews and looking down at the floor. Everyone was uncomfortable, no one knew what to do, and the song may have been halfway through. It was very awkward and painful to watch, to say the least. Through my wince, I noticed something beginning to happen. They all began to hold their moves together, even as the music skipped. Even though the music was annoying and irritating, they began to make the best of out of a bad situation. They somehow got back on the same page with each other, holding certain moves and positions longer while moving forward with an amended routine. They miraculously recovered some semblance of a gracious routine, even as the music refused to cooperate. The congregation became duly impressed. What I noticed at this point was a view my seat uniquely afforded me. I detected a figure in the center aisle all the way back, beyond even the last pews, almost actually in darkness, because it was a big sanctuary and the very back was not even lighted. And so what I was seeing was more of a shadow or a silhouette than anything else. I discerned that it was a woman dancing by herself in the darkness, out of view. And I wondered what in the world was she doing? Then I realized she was leading the dancers. And no one in the church knew it save the dancers. And as she held her positions, they began to hold theirs. As she maintained her composure, they began to regain theirs. As she remained unruffled by the circumstances, they followed her and regained their grace and form. As she was in control, they regained control. But no one else could see it because she was out of view behind the congregation. It began to occur to me then that oftentimes... Our lives similarly start well, promising, auspiciously, full of potential with people cheering us on, and then life's music begins to skip. Sickness, disease, terminal illness, the music skips. Drug and alcohol abuse, separation and divorce, the music skips. Death, the loss of a significant relationship, the music skips. Worried about kids or elderly parents, financial difficulties, the music skips. Depression, fear, loneliness, anxiety, the music skips and skips and skips. And it keeps skipping, it keeps skipping and keeps skipping and now it's stuck. We began to feel embarrassed and ashamed We panic and flounder because others are watching us and they become embarrassed for us. That's when we want to go back like this congregation of Hebrews. Exit stage left. Go back to when life was good, pleasant, innocent, fun, and unburdened. Go back before the CD skipped and the music wouldn't play right. We feel silly because we look silly and we don't know what else to do but to give up, give in and go back. But in the back, in the dim darkness behind the last pew and the last strand of light stands one unfloundered, one unpanicked and one holding his pose. He looks to be in control because he is in control. And we see Him. We do see Jesus. In the midst of music that won't play right. And life that won't go right. We do see Jesus. We face suffering and death. But He has suffered also. And tasted death for everyone. And we do see Him. Oh, in this world and in our lives, my friends. Despite everything else. We do see Jesus. When your life Your home, your job, your school, your family, your church, or your ministry won't go the way you thought or desired. Just squint and look at your choreographer. When everything is upside down, topsy turvy, and you want to go back, remember we do see Jesus. That great poet, James Russell Lowell, once wrote Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet the scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch above his own. You might be flustered, but he's not. You might be undone, but he's not. You might be unraveling and coming apart at the seams, but he's not. We might hear a life soundtrack skipping and getting stuck. But we also see Jesus. We do see Jesus. Whom do you see? Whom do you see? Tell everyone whom we see. But we do see Jesus. Amen.